Heavenly Father, Lord, it's with, I pray, thanksgiving in our hearts, joy in our hearts that we come here this morning to worship you, praise you, exalt you, and of course, your son. Lord, we thank you for this Christmas season, just this time that we reflect Meditate on, celebrate the birth of your son, your son, coming to us in human flesh to live that that righteous life, Father, that, of course, because of our sin, we could never live. And then ultimately to go to the cross and die on our behalf, die in our place, the forgiver of our sins, the one who would take our sin upon himself. But Lord, of course, not to stay dead, but to resurrect three days later, conquering sin and death, Father, raising victoriously so that we, Lord, could also be raised victoriously. That we could have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Lord, that is why you sent your son as a babe that we celebrate now as Christmas. Lord, we pray for just our time in your word this morning that it will be fruitful, that it would teach us, that it would grow us, mature us, draw us closer to you. And we pray this all in your son Jesus' name. Amen. It can be extremely difficult to keep promises, especially when it it might seem that those promises have become null and void. In his book, Up From Slavery, Booker T. Washington tells of meeting an ex-slave from Virginia who exemplified the kind of sacrifice that is sometimes involved in keeping promises. This man had entered into a contract with his master whereby he would be allowed to purchase freedom for himself by paying so much for so many years to his master. And while he was earning the money to pay for himself, he was... His master released him from service on his plantation so that he would be able to labor wherever and for whomever he could earn the most money. Well, the man went north to Ohio because the wages were better there. But each year he would return to his master's plantation to present that year's payment to his master. And after a few years, the nation was embroiled in the Civil War And President Abraham Lincoln issued his Emancipation Proclamation, which ended slavery and brought freedom to all slaves, including this man. But he still owed his master $300. Now, think about this for a minute. This former slave was free. He didn't have to pay his former master the final $300 to purchase his freedom. He had already been made free by the Emancipation Proclamation. But to this man, in his mind, he had made a promise. 
And he was a man of his word. And so he walked back from Ohio to Virginia and presented his former master with the full amount he had promised him down to the last dollar. Friends, God has made promises to his people. First, going all the way back to Abraham and then through Jacob, continuing through David, followed by all of the prophets, both major and minor. These promises involved land and descendants and people on God's throne, even the forgiveness of sins and eternal life in God's kingdom. And of course, a Messiah was promised to bring about the fruition of these promises. These promises were made first to the nation of Israel, but then some, such as forgiveness of sins and eternal life, also extended to those who would put their faith in the Messiah, God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the deal. Thankfully, these promises that we have received from God are what we call unilateral promises, not bilateral promises. So a bilateral promise is dependent on one party's performance. If you do this, then the second half of the promise is, I will do this, right? In other words, unilateral promises are made regardless of our performance because truth be told, None of us deserve to have God make good on any of his promises due to our sin. It would be totally in his right to make all of his promises to us null and void due to our wickedness and our rebellion. In other words, God doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't owe us anything. And yet he has made promises that he will keep even in the midst of our sin and rebellion against him. Well, this morning we continue with, thankfully, the unilateral promises of God made to God's people, promises now given to Mary and Joseph. So if you have in your Bible, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 will begin in verse 26. And while you turn there, just to bring us Up to speed, remember that we, in our first Christmas message, talked about promises through prophecies, right? And looking back at all the Old Testament, not all of them, but a lot of the Old Testament promises uh, being made about Messiah and the birth of Christ. And then we got to that uh, place we call the, the intertestamental period. It's that 400 plus year period where, where God is just silent silent towards his people but then at the end of that 400 years he is ready to speak and he does so first by sending his angel messenger Gabriel uh, to a priest named Zacharias and gives him the good news that his wife will bear a son they will do so in their old age they are to name him John and John will be the forerunner to the Messiah and of course it is John the Baptist that we are referring to 
Then after uh, the boy is born, Zacharias further prophesies about who and what the Messiah will do. And he gave us seven, we saw seven promises there from the angel to Zacharias that he will be the Redeemer, the Horn of Salvation, having to do with power and authority. He's from the house of David. He's the Rescuer. He is the Merciful. He is the Savior. And he is the Light. Well, today we want to focus on two more um, characters in this greatest story ever told, the parents of the Messiah in the sense of human parents, Mary and Joseph, and the promises that God has given them. Now, we just have to back up here in our story timeline just a a minute because the story of Mary and Joseph overlaps the story of Zacharias and Elizabeth and and forerunner John. In fact, we, we need to go back Um, before John was born, you know, if this was a Western, we might say, you know, meanwhile, back at the ranch, right? So we're going to, we're going to go back a little bit here to Luke chapter one, beginning in verse 26, where Luke writes this. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David And the virgin's name was Mary. Now, that phrase, in the sixth month, is referring to Elizabeth's pregnancy. It's then that God dispatches the same angel, Gabriel, to this place called Nazareth, which, by our standards, would probably fare more like a a town than a city. Gabriel is delivering a message to a girl named Mary. And by the way, her name means exalted one who is engaged or betrothed to a man named Joseph who happens to be, surprise, surprise, in the family line of David. Hmm. We might think of Jeremiah 23 and verse 5, which says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch capital B on branch there, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. A prophecy soon to be fulfilled? Yes, indeed. And by the way, a betrothal happens to be a legal binding agreement. It would take an actual divorce for these two at this point not to be married. Now, remember that in the genealogy that we have in the Gospels, even though Jesus didn't come from Joseph's literal seed, Joseph was still legally considered Jesus's dad, and thereby the prophecy of the Messiah coming from the line of David can absolutely be fulfilled. And then there's this business about Mary being a virgin. And, you know, our first thought might be, well, yeah, I would hope so. Right. But but this is this is an important piece of information for us to understand for a couple of reasons. One, for the obvious, it's going to fulfill prophecy. Right. Isaiah seven and verse 14, which says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son and she will call his name Emmanuel. What's Emmanuel mean? There you go. Secondly, secondly, the fact that she was a virgin tells us that she was sexually pure. She had not fornicated with Joseph or anyone else. 
This would have been sin, of course. It would have been an abomination to God. So I just think it makes sense that in in God uh, choosing a mother for his son, that he would choose somebody chaste, somebody pure, such as Mary. Thirdly, it demonstrates that she was not already pregnant with some other man's child and some other man who might be vying for the title of uh, father along with God. God would share that title with no one, right? His son would be only his son. And then back to the angel Gabriel in verse 28. And coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was perplexed at this statement and kept wondering what kind of salutation this was. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. There's that do not be afraid again, right? Uh, Because, of course, when angels appeared to people, it was a thing that struck fear in many. But to Mary's credit, she seems to be handling things a bit better than, say, Zacharias, who was troubled and afraid. Mary was just perplexed, which means, well, yeah, troubled. But I believe that she was not troubled so much because an angel was appearing to her. I believe it was over what the angel was telling her, and that in fact, she had found favor with God, and that he was with her. Frankly, that would be a huge shock if an angel showed up and said that about me. I would be like, you obviously have the wrong person, right? I, I, I don't think I would probably ever have to worry about that in my lifetime. And you think, wow, to be standing there and have that said to you that you have found favor with God. In any case, while she is pondering this, here's Gabriel's message to her beginning in verse 31. He says, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. It's interesting because some of these these same truths about the Messiah will also come from Zacharias's own prophecy some three months later that we looked at last week, right? I I mean, you have to love the continuity of Scripture and how it's the same, and it's the same, and it's the same. Now, what we see here in Gabriel's message to Mary, we, we, we see really six characteristics of the Messiah and his mission. And the first of which is that his name will be Jesus, right? Yeshua, which means the Lord is salvation. And this is important because remember that Israel... Israel was steeped in sin at this point in her history, especially the sin of idolatry and turning away from God. They needed a Savior. And of course, while salvation will go to the Jew first, it will also go to the Greek, the Gentile. That would be us. Secondly, he will be great. He will be great. It's the same phrase that was said of Zacharias' son John, the forerunner, except 
this greatness or, or John's greatness was qualified as being in the sight of the Lord, whereas Jesus's greatness is absolutely unqualified. His greatness is a part of his very nature. It is a part of who he is. It cannot be separated from him. We learned about his greatness, of course, in Psalm 145, leading up to all of our Christmas messages. Thirdly, he will be God's son. He will be called the son of the Most High. And who is the Most High but God himself, of course, the sovereign, supreme ruler of heavens and the earth and all of creation. And so, so Mary's son, Jesus, is also God's Son, And it shows that Jesus then possesses the very nature of God. He indeed is God. As we read in Hebrews 1 and verse 3. And he, the he there being Jesus, the Christ, is the radiance of his glory. The his being God the Father and the exact representation of his nature. Referring again to God the Father and upholds all things by the word of his power. I love that verse in Hebrews. And in addition, this, this fact fulfills Zacharias's prophecy that we saw last week in verse 76. When it was said, and you child. Zacharias, speaking of his son, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Both God the Father and God the Son are the Most High. And the bottom line here, friends, is that that Son of God and Son of the Most High are further names for Christ, further names for Jesus. They authenticate, they prove His deity that, in fact, He is God. He is God. (laughs) Fourthly, fourthly, He will be given the throne of His father, David. In addition to fulfilling prophecy, this verse also tells us that The Messiah, Jesus, would be a king. A king, and with that, all of the sovereign authority that would go with the king. All the powers and rights and privileges of a king. And not just any king or a king in the way that the Jews kind of had in mind for this Messiah. You know, somebody to replace Herod or to, you know, knock out the Caesars. But the Messiah would be the king of heaven and earth. And he he will rule a spiritual kingdom along with the physical Fifthly, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. What was Jacob's other name but Israel? The house of Jacob simply meaning all of Israel. As there will always be a remnant of Israel that will believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Both in the millennial and then in the eternal kingdoms. And then sixthly and lastly here, his kingdom will have no end. No end. It'll go on forever and ever and ever. Unlike those earthly, our earthly sovereigns and heads of states and presidents and kings and queens. Theirs will end. But in Daniel 7 and verse 14, it speaks of the Messiah's dominion as being an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. 
some tremendous promises. Let's go back to Mary. And what's her response? What is Mary's response to what Gabriel has just told her? We see this in verse 34. Mary said to the angel, How can this be? Since I am a virgin. <coughs> Uh-oh. Remember what happened when Zacharias kind of raised up a, uh, a bit of a, a question uh, when something similar was said to him, which for him signified doubt. And he was, of course, made mute by Gabriel, except this doesn't happen with Mary, does it? She is not made mute, which tells us what? It tells us that while Zacharias's question came out of his own disbelief, this is not the case for Mary. Mary's question really is, is a, a humble, sincere, maybe even biological query of which Gabriel just doesn't seem to have a problem with. So she's all right. Verse 35, the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Now, the fact that it was God's Holy Spirit that caused Mary to become pregnant tells us a couple of things. First, it explains the miraculous way a virgin could become pregnant. Uh, it answers Mary's you know, how question, how can this be since I am a virgin? And the answer is simply being because of the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, secondly, it helps us to understand, too, how Jesus can be both at the same time, 100% God and 100% man, as we call the God-man. You see, while both Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, it is Adam who is held responsible for their disobedience, with the consequence being that sin would now enter into the world. And all human beings would inherit this sin. And with that sin, they would also have death coming to all, to all mankind. And if Jesus were born of Joseph's seed, he would be born with what we like to call a sin nature. We also call it original sin. And if this were the case, how then would he be able to live the perfect life that he needed to live in order to satisfy God's holy wrath against sin? And the simple answer is he, he couldn't. He wouldn't be able to. So he had to be born not of the seed of man, but by the Holy Spirit of God. Thus being truly holy, completely set apart in righteousness, fully righteous as the Son of God, again, God incarnate. Now, to completely answer the question of why Mary needed to be a virgin and why God's Holy Spirit would need to be the cause of her conception is simply so that this child would be the Holy Son of God. The angel saying, and for that reason, being born of the Holy Spirit, for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. In other words, friends, divine sonship. Divine sonship. Now, Gabriel, Gabriel, recognizing how extraordinary and perplexing this news was for this young girl, he wanted to provide some encouragement for her as well. So look at verse 36. And behold, 
Even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. We'll come back to them being related in, in, in a few minutes. And then and the angel says this in verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. Friends, drink in the sweet nectar of that truth. That nothing is ever impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible in regard to Elizabeth or Mary or anything God wants to do with us, you and I, in our lives here today. Friends, I just think that we can forget this truth all too often. This is a confirmation that whatever the will of God is and however he is going to use you as a Christian to accomplish his will, even by the means of the miraculous, it will be done. It will happen. It will be realized, achieved and completed because, again, nothing is impossible with God. I have this ring, and it's my seminary ring. It was kind of the one thing uh, when I when I graduated that my 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 wife saw that they were advertising them, and you could you could you could get a ring. It's pretty beat up now. It's hammered on and rocks, you know, hitting it and stuff. And on the inside, I pulled it off this week because I was trying to make it out, man, and it's just not even hardly barely there. But guess what? I had engraved on the inside, Luke one thirty seven. That nothing will be impossible with God. Because in my mind, he accomplished the possible when he got me through seminary. (laughs) Truly, there is no way that would have happened apart from the grace of God. And I want never to forget that. Never to forget that. Well, Mary has a response to this. Look at verse 38. Verse 38. And Mary said, Angel, you're nuts! This whole thing is crazy and I don't want any part of this. Please pick somebody else for this mission. Oh, sorry, sorry. No, wrong. That was a wrong, wrong, uh, wrong Bible. No, she did not say that. She said, behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. (laughs) I mean, just, just stop and take that in for a minute, right? Her response and you think, that is, that is incredible. That is truly incredible faith and trust in, in such a young girl. I mean, it didn't take her long, you know, to decide any of this. She didn't, she didn't respond back to Gabriel, you know, uh, um, I'm, Mr. Angel, I, I really need some time to think about this and pray about this. If I want to be a part of this. Uh, I mean, talk about somebody whose walk obviously, was was so close to the Lord that she immediately knows and trusts that this indeed is the will of God for her and her life. Right then and there, on the spot, in the moment. I was just thinking about that and I'm thinking, wow, for that to be said of all of us. I mean, that God could call on us at any time, any moment, any place, and He does, Right? And that we would just answer immediately in the affirmative. It made me think immediately of Isaiah. Yes, Lord, send me. Here I am. Send me. 
How often is that our immediate response when we sense that the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, is giving us some direction in our life? Even more remarkable is her resolve in light of her situation. Again, be reminded, what is she, a girl of maybe 16? And the implications of a young girl like her being pregnant prior to her actual wedding, in one sense, she was basically signing her own death certificate. Remember, she was betrothed, which is a binding agreement, but one that did not yet allow for consummation. Now, Joseph... Joseph would have obviously known that the child was not his, so his assumption would have been that she had committed adultery. You think, probably not a great way to start a marriage. But furthermore, adultery was also punishable by death. The position that she would find herself in would not be like one today, where adultery is is often considered even acceptable, and an unmarried pregnant teenager, teenager is often considered quite normal, and a very kind of okay thing. Mary, Mary could be stoned for this. At the very least, she would be ostracized, shunned by friends, family, probably the whole town of Nazareth. And so the fact that, <coughs> excuse me, she believed and completely embraced God's will for her, submitting herself, body and soul to the Lord, I just think we have to acknowledge that that is truly amazing. Astounding. Now, something really cool that we learned back in verse 36 is that Mary was actually related to Elizabeth. And you go, coincidence? No, of course not. Now, think about this, because God didn't have to use a relative of Mary to miraculously birth the forerunner of the Messiah. But I think how awesome that he did and that it gave Mary somebody that she could now identify with. Right. And vice versa for Elizabeth. And at a time when when things could get really rough for Mary, it would provide her with a friend, with a confidant, someone who could truly understand the unique and and quite scary position that she would soon find herself in as an unmarried pregnant girl of 16. And it would also provide Mary an escape away from the prying eyes And the accusatory stares and the whispering gossip and even death that she would most likely find in her hometown of Nazareth. Because remember, she goes to visit Elizabeth. Well, let's, here we go. Let's continue with this narrative. Back in verse 39. Verse 39. Now at this time... Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country to a city of Judah. That would be about a three, four day journey. Verse 40, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. Now, since Mary was in such a hurry, uh, this would have been a surprise visit for Zacharias and Elizabeth. They would have had no idea that she was coming. We see verse 41, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now we just have to pause and ask whose baby, whose womb, right? Um, Not Mary's, though she was pregnant at this point. She was maybe only in her first week or two, certainly not showing yet. No, it would have been Elizabeth's baby, six-month-old John, in her womb that leaped, skipped, and jumped. 
And then, bam, there's the Holy Spirit again filling Elizabeth. Now, remember that so far, Mary has only greeted Elizabeth. And as far as we know, hasn't said anything yet about being pregnant or any of the details. And and yet, look at what Elizabeth says to her with the Holy Spirit now filling Elizabeth, verse 42. And she, Elizabeth, cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. You go, oh, she knows things. She knows things. Verse 43, and how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. I'm going to have to work on a Middle Eastern accent next, okay? We'll, so we'll, we'll get our bases covered here. But man, what, what, this is incredible, right? So just a few quick observations. Elizabeth knows that Mary is pregnant. And not only that, but that she is carrying the Messiah, Elizabeth's Lord, her baby John leaps in her, in, in her womb, affirming uh, this, uh, leaping with joy, affirms this. She acknowledges how blessed Mary is to be chosen for such an incredible honor, how blessed she is to have Mary and her Lord visiting her, and how blessed the, the child is within her because he is the Messiah, and how blessed Mary is for having believed the Lord. And you just, you got to take note here of just the, the incredible blessing that comes, friends, when we believe, when we trust, when we act faithfully towards the Lord and his will in your life. Blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon blessing. Now, like Zacharias and his amazing prophecy of praise, it's called Zacharias's Benedictus. Mary too exalts God with the following prophetic words. And it's called her Magnificat, right? That's the, the first word of hers uh, in the Latin translation. Verse 46, and Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name and his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Now, kind of like we did with Zacharias's prophetic words of praise, we'll just make a few observations here from Mary's worshipful words. In fact, Right off the bat, we can learn three things, probably more, but I just have three about just Mary's worship, three aspects of Mary's worship, because that's what she is doing here. She is exalting, she is magnifying, she is worshiping. So first off, we see the object of Mary's worship, right? It's, it's pretty clear. The Lord, she says. 
She also identifies him as God, my savior and the mighty one and holy is his name. And friends, we just might ask us is, is this the object of our worship, right? We hope the answer, of course, is a resounding yes. But do we ever substitute earthly things or other people with our worship And I would just say, let us be on guard for sins of idolatry to make sure that the object of our worship is always the Lord God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Secondly, we see in Mary a certain attitude of worship. An attitude of worship. For instance, Mary worships with with her soul and with her spirit. Right, we're told by Jesus in John 4, 23 to 24, that true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and truth, and they must worship Him in spirit and truth, meaning the truth of His Word, and with our human spirits, our hearts and minds, not with external means, such as with religious rituals or, or places or things of that nature. Next... In worshiping God with her spirit and soul, she exalts God and she rejoices in him. Exalts uh, literally means makes great. It's this word megaluno, mega, right? Megas, which is where the, that Latin word for magnificat comes from. And, and rejoicing, literally to show one's joy by leaping and skipping, denoting excessive or ecstatic joy Or delight, says one word dictionary. And then next, we see Mary worshiping with humility. I mean, the song of praise is all about who? The Lord. The Lord and all He's done. And all He is doing. And, And when she does refer to herself, it's as the Lord's bond slave. I just might suggest that sometimes in our worship... Our worship can kind of take on a strange me kind of focus, especially when we worship in music, right? Uh, some of the, the contemporary songs out there, you know, that, that we sometimes hear on Christian radio are, uh, are a little more me-centered and not so much the Lord-centered, of course, not the ones we sing in here, okay? We sing good stuff in here. We just got to be on guard for that. Then... Thirdly, in this arena, different aspects of how Mary worshipped, we see the the reasons. We see some of the reasons for Mary's worship. Beginning with the fact that she rightly understands that God is her Savior. Her Savior. I personally believe that Mary understood the true nature of Jesus as Messiah and Savior, meaning Savior from her sins. She calls him my Savior, making it very personal, not not so much Savior as a nation kind of thing. She acknowledges her humble state. And, and might it be that she's referring to the fact of her being a sinner versus some kind of a status as a, as a, uh, a citizen. She also speaks of those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart, referring to individuals and their personal sins versus Israel's sins as a nation and and how he God has exalted those who were humble and filled the hungry thirsty souls with good things and let me just point out 
as well that nothing in this text here gives any credence to what is sometimes called, uh, in, in some realms, the immaculate conception, which is the idea that Mary was sinless as the one who birthed the Messiah. And furthermore, there's nothing here um, in her worship that would ever indicate that she has believed that she herself should be worshipped. Just the opposite. Just the opposite. All worship should go to the Lord. And then next we see uh, she acknowledges the great things that God has done for her in verse 49. And there's the obvious blessing. God's blessing her to give birth to and be the mother of the Messiah. And maybe there's, there's some other things there that she had in mind as well. We see the holiness of God. She worships because of the holiness of God in verse 49. She says, and holy is his name, referring to his righteousness, his perfection. She worships because of the mercy of God. <clears throat> verse 50 and 54. And verse 50, and his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. She's citing Psalm 103 and verse 17. And this also means that those who don't fear God, namely unbelievers, will not experience his mercy, but will know well his wrath. She also acknowledges the mercy of God by helping Israel throughout the years. Then she worships the mighty deeds that God has performed. Verse 51. And, and of course, she would be thinking about the mighty deeds that he has already been doing with her and with Elizabeth. But all of his mighty deeds pertaining to the Jewish nation up to that point in time. She worships God for his justice. His justice in verses 51 to 52 in dealing with the proud and scattering them and bringing rulers down from their thrones and sending the rich away empty handed. I think we can all think of some rulers that we might like to see dethroned and some of the rich maybe that we'd like to see emptied. We'll leave that justice to the Lord though, won't we? And then there's the justice of God in exalting the humble. The humble in verses 52 to 53. And of course there are those, these are those who admit their sin. Would admit their sin and their need for a savior. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. We read in Matthew 5 and verse 3. And when Mary says next that, that God has filled the hungry with good things. She means spiritually speaking. Because she's quoting Psalm 107 and verse 9, which says, For he has satisfied the thirsty soul, and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. So, yes, she's thinking in spiritual terms, not, not physically. Though you could make a case that both would be true. And then she worships because he is the promise-keeping God of verses 54 to 55, keeping his promises, going all the way back to Abraham and the fathers of the people, which will be for his descendants forever. Now, we might just, you know, put out to ourselves, what is what is our worship like in light of Mary's? In other words, is it God focused or is it me focused? Do we worship God with our souls and our spirits and and. In truth versus some kind of external 
worship? Do we worship him with all humility? Do we worship him with an attitude of exaltation and rejoicing? And then what are the reasons we worship? What are the reasons you worship, friends? Are they good reasons? Are they proper reasons? Are they biblical, God-glorifying reasons? Now, we want to return to our text. We'll jump back there in verse 56. And Mary stayed with her, referring to Elizabeth, about three months, and then returned to her home. Now, meanwhile, on the other side of Nazareth, we find a man by the name of Joseph, Mary's betrothed. Let's just switch gears here for our last few minutes and just see what was happening with him. Uh, For this, you'll need to turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. First, just even think about this as you're turning there. What, What are some of the things that we already know about Joseph? And you go, hmm, not much, right? I mean, really. Not not much. We know that he was from the line of David. Yes, he lived in Nazareth of Galilee, a carpenter by trade, a righteous man by faith, meaning he was a true believer of God. And he was one who carefully observed the Jewish law, the law of God. He also, as we will see, was a man who dealt very graciously and very mercifully towards his betrothed Mary, even during some extremely difficult circumstances. Look at Matthew chapter 1. Look at verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. You think, this this would have been just a huge whammy for Joseph. Because again, the assumption would have been that she had committed adultery. But to his credit, as a righteous man, we see that his plan then was to divorce her quietly. So as to help avoid further consequence for Mary, the worst being that she could be stoned for her apparent crime. In addition, the assumption from other people would have been that she and Joseph had had premarital relations, thus harming Joseph's character and his standing in the community as well. If you come to uh, the, the, the deal tonight, the nativity story, it's great because you get to see all this kind of kind of play out, you know, up on the screen there. Look at verse 20. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus or he will save his people from their sins. It's kind of interesting because uh, we're not exactly told the name of the angel, are we? Is this Gabriel? Maybe. But at the beginning here, it just says an angel of the Lord. But he has this, this angel appear to him, and he just, you know, I mean, I'm sure if you're Joseph, it's like, 
wow, what? You know? And the only thing different for Joseph here is that he is visited by this angel of the Lord in a dream. And, you know, maybe that's why the the angel doesn't give him the standard, do not be afraid, right? And just kind of jumps right in there because maybe in the dream kind of uh, way of uh, appearing, it's it's not as startling or, or doesn't strike fear the way that seeing an angel outside of dream time would be. But the angel just kind of jumps right in and tells Joseph these different things that are going to happen to he and Mary. And then, of course, what he's to do about it. He says, one, the child conceived is of the Holy Spirit. Of the Holy Spirit. No worries about Mary uh, having been with someone else or that you will have to divorce her quietly because I'm telling you, Joseph, this is all of the Holy Spirit. And then secondly, that the child will will be a son and you will name him Jesus. And remember what Jesus means, right? The Lord is salvation. And then thirdly, that this child will save his people from their sins. And again, this is, I think, just, you know, a little different than what the nation was expecting from their Messiah. It either would have been some kind of national forgiveness or even more so that they were looking not so much for forgiveness, but they were looking for this Messiah to show up to, um, you know, get rid of the Herods, conquer Rome, uh, give them freedom. But yet we see here that the most important element is that he will save them from their Sins. Mary, again, understanding that that meant personal sin. And of course, this happens through the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fact that we have somebody who uh, shows up to earth. We have God, not just somebody. We have God in human form, God incarnate, incarnate to, again, live that life that we could never live and to die in our place and to go into the ground, but three days later be resurrected from the dead so that we know that those promises are true, those promises are real. We will indeed be forgiven of our sins, and we indeed will have eternal life if we would put our faith and trust in Christ. Now, back in the the text, Matthew interjects a little commentary here in verse 22. He says, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And again, we read that verse earlier. This is that quote from Isaiah 7 and verse 14. And the fact that God didn't take, um, didn't promise to take away all of the world's woes. He didn't promise to take away all of our problems or, or you know, some of those personal trials or tribulations that we go through or find ourselves in with the birth of Jesus. No, that's not what the birth of Jesus was, was, was all about. But what he does promise us is that he would always be with us. Always be with us. He would never leave us. He would never forsake us. He would walk the road of life with us, even through the valley the shadow of death. So, not only is Mary's virginity about Jesus being 100% human and 100% God, but it also fulfills yet another prophecy concerning his birth, the specific fulfilled prophecy of Isaiah 7.14, 
demonstrates that the Messiah's deity and reminds us of the reconciliation that God brings through the Messiah to us. Adam and Eve had that direct fellowship with God, which they lost, and it wouldn't be until the Messiah, thousands of years later, that God would again be with us. And now, friends, don't we yearn for what comes next? Don't we yearn for his next advent, his return, the return of the Messiah, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we then will be with him forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Well, just back in our text as we wrap this up, verse 24, And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his Wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And just like Mary, Joseph didn't question God in some kind of disbelieving way, but rather accepted his will, including even the miraculous, and just stepped forth in faith and obedience to God. So just in... in Thinking, you know, what, what should we take away from our time today in the word, this message? Friends, there's a number of things. Just be reminded again that prophecy has been fulfilled. When we read these texts, we understand that, that, that prophecy from the old covenant is now being fulfilled and brought to life in the new. And this should encourage us greatly and it should encourage us in the here and now for the future. That indeed we can trust the Lord because he is trustworthy and will make good on his future promises of Christ's return. Remember too that we just have this incredible loving, gracious, merciful promise keeping God. We have a God who will always be with us. He will walk with us in this life of course until we are with him for all eternity. Remember that nothing is impossible with God. Nothing. There's, there's nothing he can't do in your life. There's nothing he can't do through you in, in a ministry towards him and towards others. Remember, too, that obedient servants of the Lord are those who trust him in even the most unbelieving and difficult of circumstances. Know, too, that God provides the right encouragement when we need it. Especially when we need it, when you think of Mary and Elizabeth and their situation and how he used them to encourage one another. God has put other believers in your life to encourage you as well when you would need it. And then we just have this proper worship of God that we always want to make sure is before us. That we have the right object of our worship. Indeed, the Lord God, we have the right attitude. We are worshiping God for the right reasons good things to think about and meditate on at this christmas time so uh i'm going to go ahead and pray and then we're going to be able to put some of these uh things in terms of our our worshipful attitudes and and the right object and reasons um into practice as we offer god our obedience and our worship in communion let's pray father in heaven We thank you, Lord, for just the blessing of your word. We thank you for 
Mary and Joseph, and Lord, and especially, I think, just their their love and devotion to you, that when you called, Father, and when you shared with them how you were going to use them, and even in a miraculous way, they both said, uh, yes, Lord, here I am, in essence, that they stepped forward in obedience and faith and accepted your will in their lives. Thank you for that. Certainly pray, Lord, for any here that have yet to put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, that they would do so even right now, that they would pray, Lord, just a prayer of repentance, a prayer of of trusting Christ as their Savior. And we pray this all in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. And with that, Merry Christmas. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.